Erwin McManus remarked, Jesus' death wasn't to free us from dying, but to free us from the fear of death. Jesus came to liberate us so that we could die up front and then live. Jesus Christ wants to take us to places where only dead men and women can go. Death is awful in so many ways. Words fail us to describe the loss and the pain that it causes. But for the follower of Jesus Christ, death is the gateway that we have to go through to enter these new places that Jesus wants to take us. Places that he has been preparing for us since before time. Places where we will be with him forever. Places of joy rather than sorrow. Places of righteousness and goodness rather than sin and evil. Places of light and life rather than darkness and death. It's the resurrection of Jesus Christ that makes this hope a reality. Now last time in our study through the Gospel of Matthew, we looked at the crucifixion of Jesus. The hopes and dreams of the followers of Jesus died with him that day as he drew his last breath while hanging on the cross. The most horrifying thing that they could have imagined has happened. The person they had believed to be the Messiah, their Savior, has been arrested, tried, tortured, mocked, and killed like a common criminal. But the story isn't over. To quote Tony Campolo from his famous sermon, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And today, it's Sunday. We're going to look at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's Easter Sunday. So flip over in your Bible to Matthew chapter 27, and we're going to pick up where we left off last time. To begin, Timothy Keller, he wrote, If Jesus rose from the dead, then we have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Well, why does everything hang on whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? Because Jesus said he would rise from the dead. If he would make such an outlandish claim and then not actually rise from the dead, then why listen to anything that he said? The guy was obviously delusional then. But if Jesus did rise from the dead, then that changes everything. Here's one of the several times in the Gospel of Matthew alone when Jesus said that he would rise from the dead. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 17, and we read this several weeks ago, it said, Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem. On the way, he took the twelve aside and he said to them, We are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. On the third day, he will be raised to life. There's no getting around the fact that Jesus was thoroughly convinced that he was going to rise from the dead, and he let others know it repeatedly. Under normal circumstances, that's the kind of thing that would land you in a padded room for the rest of your life. 
Unless, of course, you really do rise from the dead. If Jesus did come back from the dead, then we should hang on every word that he ever spoke. The resurrection of Jesus establishes him as more than just a man. The resurrection validates everything he did and said during his life. As it says in Romans 1.4, Jesus was shown to be the Son of God when he was raised from the dead by the power of the Holy Spirit. Let's begin in verse 57 of Matthew 27. It says, As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered that it be given to him. The Jewish Sabbath begins at sundown on Friday. It's now late in the afternoon on Friday, so there's not much time left to take Jesus' body down from the cross. Jewish law required that dead bodies be taken down from the cross and buried before sundown. A man named Joseph from the town of Arimathea, he goes to Pilate and he asks for Jesus' body. Pilate agrees and orders that the body be given to him. Now, this is not normally done with a criminal who has been crucified. Their body is usually just thrown into a common grave. But the person making the request of Pilate obviously has some pull. Joseph is described as a rich man in the text here. In Mark's and Luke's telling of the story, we also learn that Joseph is a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling group of Jews who had tried and condemned Jesus. Pilate agreeing to give this body of Jesus to Joseph shows that Joseph is indeed a person known and respected among the wheels of power in Jerusalem. Now, there's something else about Joseph that also catches our attention. It says that he is a disciple of Jesus. We learn from John's telling of the story that Joseph had kept his faith in Jesus a secret, though, because he was afraid of the other Jewish leaders. Knowing Joseph is a follower of Jesus helps us understand, though, why Joseph would want to see that Jesus receives a respectable burial. He loves and respects and admires Jesus. And like the other disciples, he has hoped that Jesus was the Messiah. In verse 59, Joseph took the body, wrapped it in in a clean linen cloth, and placed it in his own tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance to the tomb and went away. Now, we learn from John's gospel in chapter 19, verse 39, that someone is helping Joseph do all of this. It's another secret disciple of Jesus named Nicodemus. Now, you might remember and recognize that name, Nicodemus. Nicodemus is the same person who came to Jesus late at night and had that famous conversation with him recorded in John chapter 3 when Jesus told Nicodemus that he needed to be born again, in order to enter the kingdom of God. Interestingly, Nicodemus is also a Pharisee, a religious leader among the Jews. So, 
we see that not all of the religious leaders were bad guys, even though they have been the antagonizers and the enemies of Jesus throughout his ministry. Not all of them were the bad guys. And in fact, some actually believe that Jesus was the Messiah, like these two men. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, and probably some of their servants, take the body of Jesus, they wrap it with strips of linen laden with spices, and placed it in Joseph's own burial tomb. In John 19, it says that they wrapped the body in about 75 pounds of a spice mixture of myrrh and aloes. If Joseph had not put the body of Jesus in his own family tomb, it would have been thrown in a common criminal's grave. And there are a couple of interesting things about that for us to take note of. First, in Isaiah 53.9, it was prophesied that the Messiah would be put into the grave of a rich man. And as we have just noted, Joseph was a rich man. Second, God is arranging circumstances here so the location of the body of Jesus will be easily recognized and found later. If Jesus' body had been put into a common criminal's grave, it would have been difficult to know the exact location of his body. Burial tombs were typically either natural or man-made caves with small couches cut into the walls of the cave where the bodies would then be laid on them. And this is the type of tomb that Jesus is placed in. And then this large, heavy, disc-shaped stone would be rolled over the entrance of the tomb to prevent animals and grave robbers from getting inside. It would take several people to actually roll the stone in and out of place. 61, it says, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite the tomb. These women, they see where Jesus' body is laid so they can come back later after the Sabbath and wrap the body with more spices and linens. Verse 62, it says, The next day, the one after preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees went to Pilate. Sir, they said, we remember that while he was still alive, that deceiver, talking about Jesus, said, after three days I will rise again. So give the order for the tomb to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal the body and tell the people that he has been raised from the dead. This last deception will be worse than the first. Take a guard, Pilate answered. Go, take, go make the tomb as secure as you know how. So they went and made the tomb secure by putting a seal on the stone and posting the guard. So concerned that the disciples might try to steal the body of Jesus and claim that he had raised from the dead, the religious leaders, they asked Pilate to prevent that from happening. So Pilate, he agrees, he has a guard posted and a seal put on the tomb to make it easy to detect if there had been any tampering done. And now we come to the incredible climax of our story, the resurrection of Jesus Christ in Matthew chapter 28. Verse 1, it says, After the Sabbath, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. Jesus was crucified and placed in the tomb on Friday. 
Saturday was the Sabbath when no one did anything. Then just after sunrise on Sunday, the first day of the week, the same women who had watched Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus place the body of Jesus into the tomb of Joseph on Friday, they returned to complete the preparations of the body of Jesus for its final resting. But things are not as they expected to find them. There was a violent earthquake, for an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. So two obstacles the women were going to face when they got to the tomb were, one, getting past the soldiers who had been posted to guard the tomb, and second, how to move that heavy stone from the entrance of the tomb to be able to go in and finish preparing the body of Jesus. Well, when they get there, they discover that both obstacles have already been taken care of. The guards are in such a state of fear and shock that they are incapacitated. And the large stone has already been removed from the entrance. And the angel, the, the angel responsible for all of that is waiting at the tomb to greet the women. <laughs> so in verse 5, the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus, who was crucified. He's not here. He has risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Now I have told you. Jesus isn't in the tomb. He has been resurrected from the dead, just as he said he would be. And this angel then gives the women a message to take back to the disciples that Jesus will meet them in Galilee. Jesus had told the disciples this is what was going to happen. That they didn't believe it, though. And we have read and noted that many times. Every time he would talk about his resurrection, they would go, uh, yeah, right. Okay, so anyway. And they would move on to something else because it all just sounded like crazy talk to them at the time. In Matthew 26, 32, Jesus said to them, After I have risen, I will go ahead of you into Galilee. And it has happened just like Jesus said it would. Verse 8 says, So the women hurried away from the tomb, afraid yet filled with joy, and ran to tell his disciples. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. They came to him, clasped his feet, and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my disciples to go to Galilee. There they will see me. So the women trying to make sense of all of this that has happened and what the angel has told them. They're afraid, they're excited, they're uncertain, they're joyful, all at the same time. They leave to tell the disciples, and all of a sudden, they run into Jesus himself. They fall at his feet and they worship him. He reassures them that they have nothing to be afraid of, and then he repeats the same message that the that the angel had given them to tell the disciples to meet him in Galilee. Now, I want to pause here for just a moment to make a couple of observations. 
First, these women, being the very first to discover the resurrection of Jesus, is evidence for the story being true. See, the testimony of women in that society at that time was not considered legally binding. So if the story of the resurrection had been a fabrication by the early church, then the first witnesses of the event would have most likely been men to lend credibility to the claim that Jesus had resurrected. Having women as the first witnesses to such an important event would have been considered of minuscule significance in the eyes of the church's critics. Second, women being mentioned as the first witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus, it points to the beginning of the new community being established among the people of God through Jesus, in that we are all invited, we are all welcomed, and that we are all equal. Verse 11 says, While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say, His disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we'll satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. So this is how the Jewish religious leaders wanted to explain away the missing body of Jesus, that the disciples had stolen the body of Jesus and then claimed that he had been resurrected from the dead. Roman guards faced serious consequences for falling asleep on the job and losing their charge. They could be executed for that. So the Jewish leaders, they give the guards a large sum of money and they reassure them that they will smooth things over with Pilate if there's any blowback about it. Let's talk a bit about this question. Did Jesus really rise from the dead? Uh, Scholar Josh McDowell wrote in his well-known Christian apologetic book, Evidence That Demands a Verdict, After more than 700 hours of studying this subject and thoroughly investigating its foundation, I have come to the conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is one of the most wicked, vicious, heartless hoaxes ever foisted upon the minds of men, or it is the most fantastic fact of history. Theories proposed to explain away the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We'll talk about this for a moment here. First is that the disciples stole the body. Well, as we've just read in Matthew here, this was the first explanation used to account for the missing body of Jesus. Matthew himself considered this claim to be so obviously false that he doesn't spend any time refuting it. He just moves on with his story after recounting it. How would the soldiers have known 
what had happened if they were sleeping at the time that the disciples stole the body? How, did, how would they know who it was that stole the body then? There were a number of precautions put in place to prevent the theft of the body of Jesus. There were guards posted at the tomb, probably four. The entrance of the tomb had a large, heavy stone blocking it. There was an official seal placed on the entrance to prevent someone from opening the tomb without detection. See, one thing is obvious. Neither the Jewish leaders nor the Romans wanted the disciples to steal the body of Jesus, so they did everything they could to prevent that from happening. Even if the Roman guards had fallen asleep, the noise from moving this big stone from the entrance of the tomb, wouldn't that wake them up? Consider, too, the mental state of the disciples at the time of Jesus' death. They are dejected, depressed, confused, frightened people. They are not in the right frame of mind to pull off a grave robbery against Roman soldiers. Stealing the body would have gone against the supposed character of the disciples, too. They would have been deliberately deceiving thousands of people with some of those very same people being tortured and killed for a lie that these men are telling. Think of the kind of evil and cowardice required to deceive people on that level. Finally, if the disciples stole the body, it means they were tortured and killed for a lie that they continued to tell. Scholar Paul Little observed, each of the disciples faced the test of torture and martyrdom for his statements and beliefs. People will die for what they believe to be true, even though it may actually be false. They do not, however, die for what they know is a lie. Well, if the disciples didn't steal the body, maybe Joseph of Arimathea, moved the body, or stole the body. Well, the same reasons why the disciples didn't steal the body also apply for Joseph and why he didn't steal the body. What about moving it? Well, being a secret follower of Jesus himself, if Joseph had moved the body, he certainly would have told the other disciples about it to end any confusion. Well, maybe the Jewish leaders stole the body. An important question to ask is, why would the Jewish leaders take the body? The Jewish leaders are the ones who asked Pilate to place a guard at the tomb to prevent the disciples from stealing the body. Why would they then go ahead and steal the body themselves? The Jewish leaders, they wanted to be able to show people that Jesus was a big deceiver. They wanted to be able to point to the dead body of Jesus to prove to people what a fool and a liar Jesus was. They definitely didn't want a missing body of Jesus. That would have played right into the claims of Jesus and his followers. The worst possible thing for them was to have the body of Jesus come up missing. Or maybe the Romans took the body. Again, the question is, why would the Romans take the body? The Romans, we'll remember, have had very little interest in this whole thing. Pilate 
he tried to release Jesus and get him out of his hair. But the Jewish leaders demanded that he crucify Jesus. The last thing the Romans wanted was further disturbance from the Jews over this whole Jesus thing. They wanted it over and done with. Well, maybe the women and then everyone else went to the wrong tomb. It's very unlikely that the women and then the male disciples would have both made the same mistake, both going to the wrong tomb, and then Joseph of Arimathea, the owner of the tomb, not say anything to any of them about it to clear things up. We read in Matthew 27, 61, how the women, they took note of the tomb where the body of Jesus had been laid. They were watching Joseph and Nicodemus and where they put the body. Finally, the Jewish leaders, they could have easily debunked the whole resurrection story by just producing the body of Jesus from the correct tomb. Well, maybe Jesus wasn't really dead. This is known as the swoon theory, and it's been around for a long time. It says Jesus was not really dead, but he had swooned. He had passed out from exhaustion, pain, the loss of blood. And then after being taken down from the cross and lying in the tomb for a while, he revives in the cool air. He then showed himself to the, to the disciples who only thought that he had raised from the dead. What would Jesus have to overcome to pull that off? Would Jesus have been able to survive two days in the tomb without food and water? Would he have survived being wrapped in spice-laden grave clothes and then been able to get himself out of them? Is it reasonable that Jesus would have single-handedly moved that big stone in front of the tomb? Would he have been able to single-handedly overcome the Roman soldiers that were guarding the tomb? Would he have been able to do all of that after having spikes driven through his wrists and feet, and having a spear shoved into his side, and having hung on a cross for several hours? Would this weak, beat-up, half-dead Jesus been able to then appear to his disciples and convince them that he was the risen Lord of life and conqueror of death? He would have been in serious need of medical attention by then. If this theory were true and Jesus had been able to do it all, it would mean that Jesus was one of the most accomplished and vicious liars in history. Jesus did nothing to discourage his disciples' belief in his resurrection from the dead. He actually encouraged it. And he then let his disciples and others suffer torture and even death for his deception. Well, maybe the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus were hallucinations. The followers of Jesus wanted so badly to believe that he had come back to life that they imagined that they saw him after he died. Well, hallucinations usually occur in people that share a common psychological makeup. They're usually off balance, unstable mentally. Contrary to that, the people of 
all kinds of psychological makeups reported seeing Jesus. Hallucinations are very subjective and they're individual. It's extremely rare that two people will have the same exact hallucination. Contrary to that, it's reported that over 500 people had the same hallucination of Jesus once. 1 Corinthians 15.3 talks about that. Hallucinations usually occur only at particular times and places. Contrary to that, the appearances of Jesus happened at various times of the day and at many different locations. Hallucinations typically occur over long periods of time on a regular basis. Contrary to that, the appearances of Jesus, they occurred for some 40 days and then they abruptly stopped, except for the special appearance of Jesus to Paul in Acts 9. Hallucinations usually occur because a person is so intent on and consumed with believing that a particular thing is true that they imagine that it really happened. But contrary to that, the disciples were persuaded against their wills to believe that Jesus had actually raised from the dead. They didn't expect Jesus to rise from the dead. They never bought into his references about him coming back to life before it happened. Every record in the New Testament of the resurrected Jesus encountering people indicates that the people, they didn't initially recognize him or expect him, even as he's standing there in front of them. They wouldn't allow themselves to accept the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead. Jesus, he had to convince them, even inviting them to touch him, to verify that he was not a ghost or a hallucination. As impossible as it may sound, the explanation that best fits all of the data is that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In closing this morning, I want to end with 1 Corinthians 15, 20. Paul wrote, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And so I say to you, happy Easter. He is risen. Amen. Let's, let's close in prayer. Father, we, we thank you that you raised Jesus up and he lives forever interceding for us before you now. And that we have the hope and the promise of eternal life, that we too will be resurrected and be with you forever. All those who have put their hope and their faith in Jesus have this as their testimony. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.